This episode may be supported by advertising depending on your location. Hello and welcome to Deep Dive in our second episode looking at the end of Shinzo Abe's time as Prime Minister of Japan. This week we'll be looking at Abe's legacy. Later in the show, we'll hear from Wakako Fukuda, one of the co-founders of the activist group SEALS, who led some of the biggest protests Japan has seen since the 1960s against Abe's proposed changes to security laws back in 2015. She'll be talking about why so many people joined SEALS, what that moment meant for democracy in Japan, as well as what she hopes a future prime minister will do to help support women here. But first, we continue our conversation with Shinzo Abe biographer Tobias Harris, to hear his thoughts on the legacy of Japan's longest-serving Prime Minister. Tobias Harris, welcome back to Deep Dive. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. I want to try and focus this discussion around a particular quote in your book. You wrote, Abe was determined to be the strong leader of a confident country eager to regain its rightful place as a world leader, not the Prime Minister of a demoralised nation resigned to steady decline. So what were the main things he did to try and achieve that transformation? Well, the main thing that was different after he came back in 2012 versus 2006 and 2007 was that he had learned to appreciate where economics had to fit in a, in a vision of a strong nation. So we're talking about Abenomics here. Where did that newfound appreciation of economics come from? To some extent, it was a political maneuver. I mean, that you know, voters care most about pocketbook issues, and he uh, did learn that he had to have an answer to that. But he didn't just do that. I mean, it was he. I mean, he really, I think, came to think about you know what could economic policy do uh, as part of a, a broader agenda of building a strong new Japan. And the key to that was his discovery of reflationary economics and this idea that the reason why Japan. Uh, had struggled for so long to turn things around was that deflation. And why do you have deflation? Because, you know, it's essentially people are pessimistic and they assume that there aren't going to be growth prospects, whether because of demographics or whether, you know, just because they see that, well, prices are going down now, they're going to keep going down. There aren't going to be investment opportunities. People aren't going to spend. So I'm just not going to spend. I'm not, you know, I'm going to hold on to my money. And, um, you know, he had, he, fell in with a group of, of economists who had emphasized this for a long time. And Abe, grabbed onto this as as fitting in with his broader agenda. So that's the difference. It comes back in 2012 and you know they're going to get growth going. And how did that new economic plan go for him? It's it's a very it's a mix, mixed results, but the point is I mean it, that it was as much an exercise in showing the Japanese people, showing investors, uh, showing the world that you know, Japan was not out of ideas. It was not out of energy. I mean, and that's why, I mean, Abe, you know, so much of it also was, was salesmanship, you know, traveling the world and giving speeches, you know, about uh, what he was trying to do and convincing people that, you know, you finally had a government that was taking the problem seriously and that had the political strength to do it and that had the right people and the right ideas and, and was going to do something differently. And so, I mean, and that, and that idea of, you know, that it's as much about, um, changing mindsets. I mean, it permeates the whole Abenomics program, but it also, I think, permeates Abe's whole agenda and his whole approach to governing. Was you're trying to convince the Japanese people that they, you know, that the power was in their hands. You know, sort of the power of positive thinking that that it was up to them to work hard um, and they could make Japan a strong, admired country. So you think that Abe 
came to believe that a stable and growing economy was essential to achieving the rest of his agenda. I do want to focus, though, on something you said there about him redefining the Japanese psyche or identity, because one of the criticisms of Abe is that he is a nationalist and as well as a historical revisionist, especially when it comes to the issue of comfort women in South Korea and Japan's role during World War II. Yeah, so where to begin with that? Um, you know, I argue in the book that, you know, not to deny that he's a nationalist, because I think he, he checks the boxes on nationalism, but but actually in some ways that the most important thing about him as a politician is that he's a statist, that, you know, he was focused on you know, building the Japanese state, using the Japanese state to, you know, to lead the way. I mean, of course, I mean, but he is, of course, a nationalist. He thinks there is something special about Japan and the Japanese people, this sort of essential Japan. And I, you know, I think for, for Abe and I think conservatives like him, you know, the, they look at the imperial household, you know, this, this idea of the imperial household, you know, as this unbroken line, um, going back thousands of years as, as, you know, you know, embodying the essence of the Japanese nation. I mean, he writes about this throughout his career. This has been a theme he's come back to. You know, so of course he does believe in the specialness of Japan, the uniqueness of Japan. But you know, as a politician, and certainly since you know, post twenty twelve, I mean, his focus was not about you know what can we do to make make sure the entire world knows the specialness of Japan. The focus was what do we do to ensure that you know Japan, the the nation of Japan, is safe and secure in an increasingly volatile and turbulent region and world. You touched a bit there on the idea of government reform and how Abe was determined to create a stronger Japanese state so that he could carry out many of his policy objectives. And I think that's something to pause on because transforming the state is definitely something that's going to outlast him as a prime minister. So what were some of the changes to the state that he managed to enact during his time in office? So, well, so first, I mean, he inherited uh, 25 or 30 years of reforms that were geared towards centralizing power in the premiership, particularly at the expense of the bureaucracy and at the expense of, I mean, I can say the ruling party, but I mean, for most of that time, the ruling party was the LDP, but basically to ensure that backbenchers in in the diet um, were not able to undermine the will and the capabilities of the prime minister to set national policy. I mean, that process had gone on for a long time. You've seen sort of the steady collection of power in the prime minister's office. And so he inherited a lot of that. But in the first two or so years in office, he put a couple of final pieces in place that uh, that really made a difference. And you, know, you talk to, to Japanese bureaucrats and, and they'll confirm this. And what are some of the examples of these changes? Most importantly, they created a cabinet personnel bureau. And basically it meant that the prime minister and the chief cabinet secretary and, and the political leadership of the government would have the power to pick roughly you know, the 600 or so senior most bureaucrats across the government. So in every ministry, and you know, it, would be th- it would be their formal appointment power. And what did that let him do that he or previous prime ministers before him couldn't do? Well, so then the expectation became that you know, all of the bureaucrats throughout the government, if you wanted to get ahead you would have to have a good reputation and, and have good marks in the eyes of the political leaders of the country. And and I think the impact was felt very early on. 
and they used it. And they, I mean, and, and actually, it's just worth mentioning at this point too that you know, womenomics, you know, and Abe's promotion of womenomics and and uh, policies to create new opportunities for women in the workforce, um, you know, had a decidedly mixed record. But one area where you did see change, and it was an area in which they had direct control over, and that was women in the national bureaucracy. Uh, they used that power to pursue that agenda. And I think they deserve credit for that. But that didn't extend to Abe's own cabinet. You know, even while he was speaking about raising more women into leadership positions, he often only had one or two female cabinet ministers out of a cabinet of 20. I mean, there's no there's no question. There's no question that the LDP as an institution uh, needs to do more to recruit female candidates because the only way you're going to get female cabinet ministers and a female prime minister is if you have a you know, significant number of female backbenchers who are you know, rising the ranks and, and competing for those positions. So there's a lot of work to be done on that front. There's no question. Um, but in the bureaucracy itself, I mean, I think the Japanese bureaucracy now looks different now than it did. And, and you look at who's been taking the entrance exams, it's a more female heavy bureaucracy than it was in 2012. And so that's, I mean, that's an encouraging sign, but you know, that, that change creating a, a personnel bureau did change the incentives that bureaucrats across the government face. And it, it enabled the Abe government to impose its will, um, not, you know, not with a hundred percent success. I mean, it didn't mean they never faced resistance from the bureaucracy, but there was more coherent national policy making than you had seen before. And, and that was, was an extremely important change. Hey, you dear listener, I'm going to break the fourth wall here and address you directly. In editing this interview, I realised that an obvious follow-up question on Tobias's points here would have been to ask what the dangers are of so much power being centralised in the hands of the Prime Minister, and whether that contributed to the frequent scandals that occurred in Abe's time in office. I didn't ask it in the interview, but Tobias's book, The Iconoclast, has much more on the topic. If you are interested in ordering a copy, Deep Dive listeners can get 25% off if they order through the Hearst website, and instructions are in the episode notes. And now, over to a message from our sponsors. This episode of Deep Dive is brought to you by our kind sponsors, Democrats Abroad. Democrats Abroad is a volunteer organisation that helps Americans overseas register to vote, and in case you haven't heard, the mail is pretty slow lately. Absentee ballots will go out September 19th, and if you haven't requested your ballot yet for the November election, you should do that right now. Democrats Abroad has a simple website to generate the form to request your ballot from overseas, regardless of your political party. Just go to votefromabroad.org, generate the form, print it, sign it, and send it off to your local election official. It's really as simple as that. Generate the application, print it, sign it, and send it, and you'll have requested your ballot. VoteFromAbroad.org makes the ballot request process simple and easy. So if you need to vote from overseas, just go to VoteFromAbroad.org. That link will be in the show notes. Thank you. One of the things that was present throughout Abe's time in office was his desire to change Article 9 of Japan's constitution, in which Japan renounces war and the use of force to settle international disputes. He didn't manage to do that, but in 2015, he did manage to expand the remit of the self-defence force so that it could, in certain circumstances, come to its allies' aid, allowing the SDF to play a much more active role overseas. 
He spent a lot of political capital on this and it caused some of the biggest protests of his career with tens of thousands out on the streets calling for him to resign. How is that policy change going to impact upon Japan going forward? I mean, for starters, I mean, I I think it's here to stay. You know, there's been this debate uh, among the opposition parties about whether they should call for, you know, rolling it back or or repealing the, you know, the national security laws from 2015 and changing the, reinterpreting the constitution back. You know, I don't know if there's any appetite for undoing that. You know, I I think it would be tremendously disruptive in many ways, um, certainly for relations with the United States. But you do write in your book that this was a particularly low point for Japanese democracy under Abe's tenure as prime minister. Yeah, the the debates in 2015 were not a high moment um, for Abe in a lot of ways. And his government, I don't think, sold the changes all that well. The opposition and the government basically talked past each other. And you know, the opposition, I think, raised lots of worst case scenarios. And the government raised some hypothetical scenarios that didn't seem particularly germane to the debate. It was it was just a, a not not the best moment for for Japan's democracy. But you know now that those exist, I mean, I you know, and I think there's some question. You know, if there's a crisis, will Japan you know rush to its allies' aid? And you know, there's there's still a room for there's still room for political discretion. I mean, I think that's maybe the most important thing to take away. I mean, it does not obligate Japan to. You know, run off and, and join a war in the Middle East. You know, the more interesting question is if there was a crisis in its neighborhood and the U.S. were involved, you know, how could Japan not be involved in the kinds of roles that the, um, the reinterpretation envisaged and the, the national security laws envisaged? And so, I mean, that, that really is, is the test. And if there, you know, if there's a crisis in the East China Sea or, or on the Korean Peninsula, what sort of, uh, role Japan ends up playing, you know, but that's going to depend on who the political leaders are at the time. I think that quite neatly moves us on to Abe's foreign policy agenda because you, you write extensively about this in your book, um, and he has had to play this enormously difficult-sounding juggling act between the U.S., Russia, China, and and other regional powers such as South Korea, and you know, obviously the ever looming presence of North Korea. How do you think Abe will be remembered in terms of his his foreign policy agenda? I mean, I think we can think about his foreign policy agenda maybe in maybe in three different ways. So the first maybe call it the relationship building. And and I think in a number of ways this was where he was most successful. You know, the the Japan India relationship is is I think at a whole other level. And part of that was that he had this you know, personal rapport with Modi uh, but a large part mm. of it is just that you know there there is I think a very close strategic alignment and and view in both both governments both business communities and both you know the armed forces of both countries you know that that their interests are aligned and I think you've seen progress uh, on all of those fronts to bring the two countries closer together. I mean it's it's hard to see uh, you know that progress. Faltering, you know, Abe put a lot of effort into strengthening ties with Australia. I mean, I think that will continue and and outlast him. Uh, ASEAN, you know, was a major uh, focus for Abe's efforts, starting with his first year when he went to every ASEAN country over the course of that year, and you know that's going to continue. Mm-hmm. So you've seen you know a tremendous uh, investment of time and attention. 
by the prime minister and other senior leaders, and of course, also actual physical, uh, you know, investment of capital uh, in many places across the region uh, to counter China's influence. And the model I think Abe made of you know Japan being present, I mean, all of that I think is going to outlast him. So, if relationship building is the first bucket of Abe's foreign policy agenda, what was the second? You know, second bucket is the United States. And I think a lot of people maybe like to divide it into, you know, the Obama years and the Trump years. And, and there's a certain logic to that. But, you know, the underlying goal was the same throughout. And that is from the very beginning that there was a recognition on Abe's part and people around Abe was that Japan really has no alternative uh, to ensuring its security in an Asia in which you know, China is just an increasingly powerful actor um, than for the United States to be engaged in the region politically, economically, and militarily. And that, of course, means as Japan's ally and security guarantor. You know, during the Obama years, you know, I think Japan positioned itself as a, you know, a critical um, pillar of the Obama administration's rebalanced Asia strategy and, and, you know, and Abe was committed to that. And so I think there were enough people in both governments who, even though in the first year you had a lot of tension over, um, you know, what Abe uh, planned to do about, you know, history, you know, historical memory and, and what implications that might have for its relations with its neighbors after, you know, after he goes to Yasukuni in December, 2013, I mean, I think there's a real commitment in both administrations to try to move past uh, those issues and to focus on the shared strategic interests and the, they got a lot done. I mean, by 2016, I think you could say that the relationship between the U S and Japan was as strong as it was ever, as it ever had been. And then you get the transition from Obama to Trump and you have a, a U.S. president who had made no secret for a long time of his hostility uh, to U.S. Uh, alliances with countries like Japan. And, you know, Japan, I think, had reason to fear during the 2016 campaign, you know, of what a Trump administration might mean. And so in pursuit of this goal of we have to make sure the U.S. is still engaged in the region, you know, Abe made this gamble on a close relationship with Trump and that he would invest in those personal ties and went to Trump Tower right after the election. And it was this visitor, your know, first visitor at Mar-a-Lago in 2017, when you know, they played 27, you know, 27 holes of golf. And yeah, they've played golf multiple times since. I mean, all of that, um, you know, served a strategic purpose. But it does seem like over the course of the Trump presidency, a lot of the work put into strengthening diplomatic ties in Asia during the Obama era has been undone. Japan's relationship with South Korea are in the pan. Japan seemed to pivot to closer ties with China, but this year those seem to have disintegrated as well. So even if there was progress in some areas, much of the latter part of his time in office seems to have been a step backward. Yeah, so that's the third bucket. So you've had, you know, so if you had relationship building across, you know, the the Indo-Pacific, so to speak, and then the you know this effort to keep the U.S. Uh, engaged in the region, and then finally, you know, you had what this effort to solve the settling the accounts of of post-war diplomacy, which is what he uh, called it when he was running for his third term as LDP leader in 2018. And, you know, that's these big, long-standing challenges that have defied previous efforts to solve them. And you know, most notably, the lack of a territorial settlement and peace treaty with Russia, the outstanding issues about the status of abductees in North Korea and trying to finally solve that issue. And I, and I think maybe... Um, 
also with that was a you know an attempt to find a durable constructive relationship with china and and you know that effort i think consumed a lot of his attention post 2016 and you know all of those uh, projects ha- you know as abe leaves office Diplomacy with North Korea went nowhere. You know, with Russia, he offered concession after concession, and Putin took those concessions and offered virtually nothing in exchange. And and uh, you know, efforts at a a more stable relationship with China, I think, have been totally upended by the events of this year. And one of the biggest, I think, questions going forward is is whether there's anything a successor can do to to change that direction. And of course, on top of all of those issues. Uh, you know, after 2018, relations with South Korea are as bad as they have ever been. Given this effort to rally the region's democracies to counter China's influence and and to uh, you know balance against China, you know as it gets stronger and as it as it you know not only as it gets militarily stronger, but as it promotes a kind of new model of authoritarianism, you know it it, it is hard to believe that. Japan will have much success in that approach if it can't find a way to include one of the region's most successful democracies in the effort. You wrote in a recent column for the Japan Times that Abe seemed reluctant to use his political capital to deal with long-term challenges. And I think that's a really interesting point to raise when looking at his legacy because of the 17 prime ministers there were during the Heisei era, he was by far the longest serving and had perhaps the most political capital to spend of any recent leader of Japan. But despite the promise to make women shine, Japan has fallen down the gender equality rankings. Climate change is something that his government never really dealt with and will become an increasing threat to Japan as the century continues. There's still the problem of Japan's declining birth rate and shrinking population. So do you think Abe squandered a great opportunity to make serious systematic reforms that would put the country in a much stronger position beyond the limits of his time in office. Yeah, I mean I, I obviously I stand by by you know what I wrote that I think I mean, there's no there's no question that you know that Abe was determined you know to pursue political stability and valued political stability as an end in itself as his time went on. You know, and stability is not a bad thing, but there's no question that that he did not use the tremendous power that he had accumulated you know, to prioritize you know, some of these these harder challenges, and, and you look at, at some of the the structural reforms that were uh, proposed as part of the Third Arrow, and I mean the way in which they ended up being devised and then translated into law and then passed into law and then implemented. I mean, it would be a like a two or three year process just to get something done. And, and you know, you mentioned climate change. I mean, I, I mean, I just think all I think of is missed opportunities. You know that that you, you know Japan was probably the most stable democracy in the G seven for a good chunk of Abe's tenure. You know, Abe, you know, without significant domestic opposition, unlike a lot of his his peers, you know, he he. It is easy to imagine that. He could have been. He could have been a, a a genuine leader on on climate issues. That you know he could have made it a priority and at least um, targeted Japan's carbon emissions in a much more aggressive way. Yeah, and well, it wasn't like he couldn't wield the tools of politics when he wanted to, as we talked about before, with the challenges to the role the self defense force plays in 2015. With those policies, he really pushed 
them through Parliament. And even though his popularity dropped at the time, it recovered and he did still spend another five years as Prime Minister. So you do wonder if he couldn't have taken a more aggressive approach in other areas, not just climate change, but dealing with the declining birth rate, regional revitalization, uh, and all the other things that he, he could have attempted to do. It's also worth stepping back, particularly on the demographic issue. And and I think maybe there's a lesson, and I do write about this in the book, that, that maybe the ultimate lesson of the Abe years is that what I think was the great hope of the Heisei era, you know, you're leading up to Abe, you know, was this great hope that you would have a strong leader, you'd, you know, you would have policy debates, you'd have these two strong parties and a robust democracy and the strong prime minister who would execute a national policy. And, and that was the answer to Japan's problems and, and, you know, securing Japan's future. And, you know, in some ways, you know, Abe was the realization of of the dream of those reformers and in some ways this is an illustration of the limits of that vision you know you have you do have these enormous social problems these you know essentially intergenerational problems where you know, the decisions of today are are echoing into the future and are going to affect future generations and you know they they're sort of beyond the ability of a leader you know of the the Heisei reformers all hoped for and the fact is that these are things Japan is going to have to live with and future you know Abe's successors are going to are chances are they're probably not going to be quite as politically powerful because they're probably not going to enjoy the 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 stable conditions that Abe was blessed with for I think a good chunk of his tenure yes and the first challenge for whoever's next will be dealing with the impacts of the coronavirus. That's right. You, so you, you start with that, and then you know just the the fiscal impact of baby boomers getting older. You know, as the demographic crunch really starts to be felt, and uh, you know, who knows what you know what Asia is going to look like, depending on the decision of the the U.S. and China and, and the other powers in the region. Uh, that you know, that's going to uh, impose potentially some constraints on Japan's leaders going forward. Um, you know, the economy, I, you know, I still think his pursuit of a new model for growth over the long term, you know, had not, you know, at least has not borne fruit yet. And so, you know, these are all problems that his successors are going to live with. So coming back to the quote we started this episode out with, do you think that Abe achieved the transformation for Japan that he desired? I think all you... All you have to do to answer that question is to listen to the press conference he gave in which he announced his intention to resign. Uh, and, and, you know, he, you know, I think at several points sounded uh, almost on the verge of tears and, and, you know, admitted, you know, I think admitted quite frankly and, and you know, in, in expressing his regrets for, you know, for not being able to revise the constitution, not being able to bring abductees home. You know, sort of with that, I think recognizing that, you know, he wasn't able to solve some of the biggest, you know, the biggest things that he had wanted to use his his political power for. And so, again, with that, going back to to what we were talking about previously, that you know, there was a a an attempt to find a way for Japan to be a strong, important country, even as it as it lives with you know some pretty some pretty significant long term constraints. And and that's you know maybe that is the lesson of the Abe era. So it's not a Japan that is fundamentally transformed, but a, a, a but a Japan that is able to be maybe to have a little more courage um, in the face of its challenges. 
That was Tobias Harris. My thanks to him for appearing not just on this show, but on last week's show as well. His new book, The Iconoclast, is out now and can be ordered via the Hearst website for global delivery. Deep Dive listeners can use the promo code ICONOCLAST25 to get a 25% discount. A link and instructions will be in the show notes. Joining me now is Wakaka Fukuda, a writer, activist and a co-founding member of the group Students Emergency Action for Liberal Democracy, better known by its acronym SEALDS. Throughout 2015 and 16, SEALDS led demonstrations against the Abe government's proposed security laws that redefined the role of Japan's self-defence force in overseas operations. Those demonstrations turned into the country's largest protest movement since the 1960s, with an estimated 120,000 people taking to the streets outside parliament. Wakaki, Wakaki, <laughs> Wakako, thank you so much for joining me today. Hey, thank you for having me. So when we look at Abe's legacy, I think, you know, redefining those security laws will almost certainly be thought of as one of the key policy changes of his time. So as a leader of those protests against those laws, what was it about that moment in time that galvanized so many people to march with SEALs? I think a part of the reason for that many people to um, get out to the streets and protest was definitely um, Abe administration passing unconstitutional laws, you know, one after another. But at the same time, I know how unfamiliar Japanese people feel to constitution. So honestly, I think media played a bigger role for, you know, that many people to join us back then. I mean, both mass and social media. Back in 2011, there were fairly big protests against nuclear power plants due to the accident happened in Fukushima, right? Um, then a few years later, there was SESPOL, which was a group of students protested against secret protection law, um, which later regrouped to be SEALs. And during all that time, I remember media was constantly reporting about us. So that simply attracted more and more people because it's not really like Japan has no history of protests and demonstrations. Mm. It's been happening. It just wasn't really widely recognized and seen in mainstream media like the ones in 2015. So with the help of media, it made more Japanese people confident or like comfortable enough to be a part of the movement. What what do you think about those protests made them so like media friendly or, you know, made the media want to report on them? Or was it the issue itself? I mean, definitely the issue itself was the reason as well. But at the same time, SEALs used a lot of social media approach to people in my generation. So, you know, millennials and younger, you know, we paid so much attention in details with flyers and or what we wore to the protest um, how we spoke and how we used um, hip-hop music at the, at the protest and so we I think we really tried to change the whole picture of the protests and demonstrations that people had. We have to repaint the whole picture for more people to first feel comfortable, then be, you know, with us and join us. Yeah, I remember reading articles when I was researching for this, just saying like SEALs were the group that made protesting cool again in Japan. (laughs) Does that strike a call with you? Is like, is that, do you recognize it as that? I think i mean now that i think about it maybe we paid a bit too much attention on appearance you know that also could you know lead to um, another form of sexism you know in the movement as well but we i mean we worked with uh, some uh, clothing brands or like actual designers we try to be more somehow more media friendly and also millennial friendly. <laughs> so <laughs> that of course involved a lot of consumerism as well but i at least I learned that 
that's how things work in Tokyo. Um, and yeah, that ended up bringing more and more people to the streets, which mm. was definitely a progress in our democracy. You know, coming back to the issues a little, a little bit more, um, you know, around that time, a poll by the daily newspaper, the Asahi Shimbun, I think it was taken in September 2015, found that 54% of the respondents to their poll opposed the bill. Right. Um, that Abe was trying to push through this mm-hmm. 2015 security bill, but those bills did end up passing. So, right. so what effects do you think you know the Abe government pushing those security bills through government, despite a majority of the public being opposed, has had on the country and on democracy here? Um, I think by pushing that through, despite public opposition, um, I think he succeeded to make more people, more citizens lose their faith in democracy, first of all. So Japan has been a democratic country after World War II, but after the student movement in 60s you know, to 70s, which came to an unfortunate end, mm. people started avoiding major political interactions, which even included voting at elections. Like I said earlier, with time, more and more people started participating, joining us in the streets and whatnot. But um, then the you know the bills passed in September, and then then you know at, at the point once again people were let down, and it made people feel like their voice and actions don't matter anymore. I mean, it was our prime minister and his administra- administration that failed us in our democracy, but it did make a lot of people feel as if our movement failed. Once he successfully did that, it you know it certainly became a habit. And what it's been like five years now since then. Um, now people got used to it, so. Yeah, I think um, making people feel like their voice is like almost meaningless, which pushed them even further away from politics, was the impact that had on our mm. society and our democracy. So, I mean, you say it's a, a failure of democracy there, but Abe then did go on to win a supermajority in 2016 and mm-hmm. win both the upper and lower house in a national election, which, right. you know, that is a another form of legitimate democratic practice. You know, winning an mm-hmm. election is... is mm-hmm. A form of democracy it's yeah. the kind of the ultimate election form of election. democracy yeah. Yeah. yeah so like i mean how does that make you feel and how does that make you, you know, reflect on on those protests well seeing them win once again <laughs> um i was well, a little bit disappointed but certainly wasn't surprised at all hmm. um as a former member of seals i would say we definitely uh did what we could but also we definitely did not have enough time to work on bringing more people to vote. Uh, a little more than 30% of young people in their 20s, I believe, went to vote at that election, which also means um, if people actually showed up at the polls, then things might change in the future. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't too disappointed. It's not like um, that many people actively supported, you know, LDP and, you know, Abbott's politics. But Again, like I said, election is election. Democracy cannot just, you know, be accomplished just with voting or just protesting. We need both. So I want to move forward in time away from your your work with SEALs to actually what you're doing now a lot more, which is writing a lot about feminism and um, you know from a young woman's perspective in Japan 
bringing it back to Abe, uh, one of Abe's pledges under Abenomics was to try and promote a more diverse society right. and workforce with more women in leadership roles. You know, he had, he had this campaign slogan of wanting to make women shine. Mm-hmm. Yet over the course of his time in office, Japan has fallen down the gender equality tables. So what would you like to see future prime ministers do mm, to support women? I think, well, first of all, yes, they said something about um, make women shine. But I think what they actually meant was that they want women to shine for them, not for women themselves. It's not never about empowerment or empowering women. Um, yeah, so maybe for a future prime minister, whoever that might be, uh, maybe, you know, they could actually let women choose to shine or not. Um but yeah, for sure, I would love to see more women having seats at the table, first of all. Um, I expect to have more women's voice represented in politics, which I really think shouldn't be something that we still need to you know, demand mm. in 2020. But I see little to no representation that I want to see in politics. Yeah, and also I really want a you know, future prime minister to to work for the people, um, not just for the rich, but actually work towards, you know, more gender equal, economically stable society that gives, you know, like I said, everyone a chance to live, mm-hmm. not to survive, but to live, um, to live the life they want, not to survive the life they, they were given. So, yeah, and also I really want... Um, I really want to. You know, I want them to definitely stop letting middle-aged men with outdated mindsets to dictate everything in politics. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a very fair ask. I mean, you do get these moments where it does feel so outdated. For example, when uh, there was that contrast where there was a New Zealand politician who brought their baby to Parliament right. and they were like applauded. And mm-hmm. I think I can't, I can't remember the exact details, but then there was something right. in the Kumamoto right, Assembly right, right. Yeah. where a woman brought their yeah. baby to Parliament she, and they were kicked did. out or like asked to leave or yeah. And yeah. somehow that is still controversial um, because it's it's quite interesting because um, when. You know, when in the society, women says they don't want to have children. That's also controversial. Mm. But then when they have kids, bring them to work. <laughs> and that's also controversial. That's also a problem. So, I mean, message is pretty clear. They they just, you know, they, they want us to stay home and <laughs> take care of, you know, the house and kids. And that's pretty much what they want, you know, for us to do. So how do we enable more women to get into politics? Well, like I just said, a lot of people still expect women to be, you know, stay-at-home moms, right? And those are exactly the people that's, you know, in the government right now. So to send more women there, yes, that is that is a very, you know, that, that's a lot of, that's going to be a lot of work. And I know some parties have been trying, but I think... So, you know, when, when a woman wants to, to work or have some career or, you know, do anything outside of her household, we already have, you know, a lot more obstacles than men do. So first of all, we have to fix there so that women can actually leave the house and, you know, pursue whatever they want, um, you know, including um, being more involved in politics. Mm-hmm. Would you support something like a quota system? 
Um, uh, totally, yeah. Yeah, I've just pulled up some stats from the Nikkei Asian Review. I think these are for 2018. And if you look at you know leadership at listed companies, so so companies that are on the stock exchange around the world, in Japan, the number the percentage of women on the boards of those companies is just 3.7 percent. Mm-hmm. By f- comparison, France it was about 34 percent. 23% in the UK and about 18% in the US. So, you know, it's still not great. But yeah, like, is is a quota system the solution to, at least at first, to get more people into, or more women into those leadership roles? I mean, with these numbers, it, it, it's almost like women don't live here. But <laughs> um, yeah, I totally support that. I mean, it really shouldn't be about numbers of women, mm. you know, like how many women are there and here. It shouldn't be about that, but unfortunately it still is. Um, and to have, you know, women's voice represented in certain places, we definitely need, you know, certain number of women. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I totally support this system. And I, I actually, yeah, I want to see that here. Wakako, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. That's it for Deep Dive this week. I hope you're sated on Shinzo Abe content for a while. Next week, we'll be looking at something different. My thanks to Wakako Fukuda for joining us and Tobias Harris too, not just this week, but last week as well. Find out where to see more from them by checking out our show notes. Thanks also to you, the listener, for making it this far through the episode and to all those who've recently rated the show. It's never too late to add another one. If you want to reach out to us directly, find me on Twitter at omhboyd or send us an email. The email is deepdive at japantimes.co.jp. Until next time, thanks as always for listening and a very big Potskare Summer.